Hello, and welcome to the Not Boring Podcast. I'm here today with Edmund Zagarin, the founder of BitOps. Edmund, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for, uh, for having me on. Pleasure. So I want to start somewhere, and I hope this isn't offensive, but it's called the Not Boring Podcast, and you're in procurement. So can you convince me and everybody listening as to why procurement is not boring? Thank you. I'd be, uh, I'd be happy to. And uh, I don't think I'm going to convince everyone because there's a lot of process associated with procurement. And typically when you hear the word process, you might associate that with paperwork, forms to fill out, signatures to, uh, to append. And I'd say in much of procurement, that's not wrong. Uh, there's a lot of process in, involved with procurement, but uh, there's also a lot of money involved with procurement. And whenever you see a lot of paper and a lot of process and a lot of money, I mean, I see a lot of opportunity. And I think that automation, especially what's happening now with the um, unlocking of tremendous reservoirs of data to enable intelligent automation and uh, enabling collaboration across different teams and different functions within a company and with the external supplier partners, is just really creating a tectonic shift in business globally, unlike we've ever seen before. The reason uh, on, a, on a more serious note, the procurement matters, I think, not just to the businesses, but it should matter to everyone, is that um, in a lot of ways, the world that we live in is the result of a series of choices and decisions that are made about how we spend our money. And procurement processes are the structural way that businesses, corporations, nonprofits, governments, and the largest organizations in the world decide where money should go. And there's a, a famous um, astronaut quote, I believe it's um, Neil Armstrong, who said, well, the <laughs> scariest part of going into space was knowing that every piece of the spaceship I was on was awarded to the lowest bidder. And to some extent, there are elements of the world that we live in, when you look around any room that you're sitting in at the chairs and the desks and the walls and the lighting fixtures, every every element of the built environment moved through a procurement process at one point on its way to arrive um, in, in the environment that, that you're encountering it in. And so many elements of the businesses that we interact with, of the institutions that we interact with, 
are informed and influenced by a procurement process. And if you look at any of the monumental crises and kind of drivers of change in the world, a lot of them are influenced by these imperceptible decision criteria that create um, choices that are choices, but not intentions. Um, and if you think about um, the conversation around supply congestion for PPE or the distribution of the COVID vaccine, if you think about um, food insecurity in America and who has access to healthy, uh, nutritious food, um, if you think about who is able to uh, monetize access to energy resources, a lot of those issues in some way are tied to a to a procurement process and to a uh, supply chain um, behind that process. And so I think that if we are really serious about being uh, authors of our of our own stories and taking charge over the the world that um, that at very least um, our actions are responsible for, procurement's part of that story, um, any, any way that you slice it. And I would say in many businesses, it's a critical part of that story that's often neglected and, and overlooked. You've convinced me. So the first question that I have to follow up is when you say there's a lot of money here, how much money are we talking about? I mean, it's the entire industrial economy minus what companies spend on uh, payroll. And so, it's in the trillions of dollars, uh, the, just the amount of money that moves through a uh, procurement and, uh, and supply chain process. And then um, there are different ways to, uh, to segment the market. So it's estimated that there's around uh, half a million manufacturing firms in the United States uh, that have a procurement process that will be automated in the next 10 years. Uh, so that would be one way to, to look at the market. But of course, manufacturing is just one small piece of the economy as a whole. And if you consider that every company virtually buys something, and most companies like to have a process in place that governs and provides some guidance and covenants around how the company's money is spent, then this is um, a solution space where um, everyone will need a solution at some point. That solution is very likely to be digital. It's very likely to consume data and it's very likely to leverage automation. And as we see the market really turning towards a results oriented approach to evaluating solutions, it's also very likely that in specific industries, you're going to see winners in those spaces emerge that have features and interfaces dedicated to personas that are more prevalent in those industries. Think automotive, aerospace, defense, government, as well as healthcare, food and bev. So these are, these are industries that um, have specific purchasing, procurement and supply chain needs. Those needs have specific risk factors and are driving towards specific goals. And thus, to the extent that automation can offer a path for optimization, I think that you're going to see a renaissance in procurement and supply chain solutions that, that really is only just beginning. So why are we in need of a renaissance? These are obviously huge amounts of money, I guess, split up among a bunch of different decisions in all sorts of places, but what's wrong with the process now? Great question. The short answer is so much. There is so much that is, that is maybe not wrong, but simply um, antiquated. And if you think about the experience that um, 
we as consumers have when we buy something. We're used to searching with keywords, comparing with photographs, and buying with a single click. That is the kind of gold standard in e-commerce now. And that, that um, as, as crazy as it is to say, that experience today just simply does not exist um, for most business buyers. And there are good reasons for that. Even if you use Amazon for business, which is the, um, uh, the kind of procurement product that, uh, that Amazon has, typically it doesn't have your approved vendors. It doesn't reconcile with your financial system on the back end. And it doesn't match with your internal numbers for tracking materials, parts, vendors, and performance over time. Now, there are um, a whole slew of middleware providers <laughs> that will crosswalk um, different e-commerce punch-out catalogs for purchasing. But what you're also seeing is that distinct areas of the procurement stack, like um, not just marketplace, but like procure to pay, the invoice and purchase order reconciliation process. See, I told you some people would will, will consider this boring. I, I guarantee that. <laughs> but also in the strategic sourcing process, the uh, request for proposal, request for quote, and the negotiation process. These are all processes that um, typically today consume a terrific amount of um, manual um, data entry. They consume a terrific amount of human judgment and cognition, and they require that the participants in the process have a tremendous amount of job experience, tribal knowledge, and often, um, are experts in the categories that they're buying or negotiating. And so, you know, the short answer to what's wrong with that process is that it takes too long and it costs too much money. It relies upon people who are retiring en masse. It frequently is so expensive that it can only be applied to a very small percentage of a company's spend. Um, and because of that, there are kind of three cascading effects. One is that it just bottlenecks new initiatives. So as companies are launching new products, need to stand up new supply chains, um, procurement is more often perceived as a bottleneck than an enabler. Uh, the second um, kind of cascading effect is that when processes um, are perceived as bottlenecks, they're not used as often as they should be or could be. Um, and that means that a lot of deals are not negotiated properly. Um, they're certainly not negotiated with an eye towards value as well as performance. And you have companies that are going out with a business need for a vehicle and they're, you know, buying a Cadillac or a Maserati instead of a Honda Civic when all the, the business needed was to move goods or services or people from point A to point B. Well, that's perhaps not the most uh, value centric way of thinking about um, meeting uh, the operational needs of a business. Um, and then um, the third kind of countervailing or cascading effect of, of, uh, of this movement, um, people essentially becoming dissatisfied with the antiquated nature of the existing process, um, is that you have, anytime you have a process that's underused, you have fragmentation. And so as people go off on their own to essentially act as their own uh, procurement um, agents and, and um, negotiate their own deals, that spend increasingly in companies is fragmented in different categories. It exists in communication silos. And you see that the data needed to make decisions for critical supplier relationships, whether it's in raw materials, packaging, spare parts, chemical inputs, metals, 
that data in many uh, of some of the world's best companies is living in spreadsheets on people's desktop computers or trapped in long email chains where it simply cannot be leveraged to make mission critical business decisions. And so people are waking up to this reality and they're waking up to a world where it's no longer acceptable for that data to be inaccessible. It's no longer acceptable for decisions to be made without that data. So you put that together and everyone comes around the table and says, we need a solution that's gonna centralize this data, that's gonna automate the analysis of it, that's gonna remove or significantly decrease the amount of manual data entry, the amount of human cognition, and it's gonna enable procurement for the rest of us, democratizing access to some of the benefits and power um, that procurement can offer when it is done right. And it can be a asset and empowering and enabling function for innovation, new product introduction, and new business initiatives. And that dream, that opportunity is so powerful from an ROI perspective that whether you're you know, hiring a new team, buying a new technology solution, or outsourcing a component to a service provider, this is something that every major company is thinking about. And in a world of disrupted supply chains, this is a priority that is now a C-suite priority at every major company that, that, that you're talking to. You really couldn't have picked better timing, but obviously you started this before supply chains were, were broken down over the past year. Is this a lifelong passion? Was Little Edmund growing up just fascinated by the intersection of procurement and data or kind of how did you come to this problem and how did you come to found BitOps to solve it? Great question. And um, I guess Little Edmund was unaware of supply chains and I think it's it's only as I've gotten older that I've realized kind of the interconnectedness between some of the ways that processes are designed and the ways that um, societies are organized. As a as a little kid, I was very interested in um, businesses. Um, me and my brother used to you know sell rocks and lemonade and and, and other things around the neighborhood. But um, I actually I got, I encountered um, encountered procurement just actually in. First, my, my first company I did, which was a, um, a video production company. And um, the first types of procurement work that I did was actually sourcing for video productions, which are uh, essentially like their own separate business entities. Essentially, each um, film or, or, or video production often has its own LLC, and you have a budget for it, and you need to find different material that um, is used in different scenes, different vehicles. Um, and one of the first procurement projects that I, I remember doing was um, sourcing a cherry picker for a set. And this was in Detroit, Michigan. <laughs> and we're talking like a real cherry picker. A real cherry picker. Yeah. A big, big bucket truck to lift a, a camera operator up, you know, two, two stories up to, to get this very specific shot in, uh, in, uh, in downtown Detroit. And this actually um, was... Uh, was during the um, the bankruptcy proceedings of the city of Detroit. And so <laughs> there were all kinds of complexities associated with getting the permits and finding uh, a cherry picker that was available. Um, there actually, uh, there was a lot of construction going on. So they'd all been bought up. We had to go to a different uh, state to um, to actually find one with a, with a licensed operator. And so that was, um, those were some of the first uh, sourcing projects that I worked on that I really was like, wow, this is 
it's almost like a scavenger hunt <laughs> where you have a set of requirements, you're looking around in the market, you're trying to meet the need of, and you're, you're performing a service essentially to the, to the production. When um, I, I was at my, my next job uh, teaching um, at the University of Iowa, I became a procurement officer of, uh, of, of the university actually got some formal training in, in procurement, um, which um, was my first exposure to actually a digital procurement system. <laughs> and it was not, uh, not optimal, as I think many people who have ever uh, manually keyed in a receipt amount <laughs> into a third-party system for just managing expenses associated with the business. You know, it's, it's not very strategic. You don't feel like you're getting a good sense of how this tracks against your budget it really does feel like it's kind of transactional IT work um, at, at, at the end of the day. And I began, I was doing policy research um, as part of my, my gig at Iowa um, and began doing some policy analysis work for startups that were looking into, um, into procurement um, and ended up getting a job uh, as an analyst, moved out to the Bay Area, um, started actually working for one of those startups and the rest is history. I, I got into sourcing consulting after, you know, that analyst role kind of worked on a bunch of different projects through in healthcare and multinationals, uh, both uh, private and public sector used uh, essentially all the software <laughs> that was out on the market. So, so kind of got a firsthand uh, experience of, of what was available from, from a capability standpoint. And when we started BitOps, we, we didn't have a clear idea of exactly what we wanted to do. We just knew that there was such a big problem and we knew what wouldn't work. And so we began running a bunch of experiments to uh, to try and identify things that could really move the needle. Yeah, so after Stu Bradley introduced us and we, we had a quick conversation, one of the things that struck me was this kind of combination between very clearly a business person and somebody who's also come from the academic world. So citing research papers and different ways that you're running tests. And it feels so much different than kind of the company formation process that you're used to hearing about in Silicon Valley. So can you tell me a little bit about once you kind of had the idea that you needed to fix something, what that process looked like? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, you know, I, I will say that like my thinking in a lot of ways is very much um, hypothesis testing. You know, it's, I think anytime you claim something and you don't have evidence, you, you run into problems. And one of the things that uh, I learned in um, entrepreneurship that, that's also in common with, uh, with debate, which is an activity that um, is, is very near and dear to my heart, is you have to do your research, you have to do your homework. Preparing for, uh, for a debate is very similar to preparing for a negotiation. You have to know the market, you have to know who sits on the other side of the table. Um, if you're creating a project, you have to have a sense of the project's history, if it's been run before, um, where you're starting from, what is setting expectations for everyone involved. It's actually a lot like doing a digital transformation or a go live. Um, it's all about the culture, the people, and what they think is important and how their stakeholders perceive success to be. I love um, it. And so, I'm sorry to yeah, yeah, yeah sorry yeah. to interrupt. We have this, we have this love of debate in common. Oh, and it's yeah. so interesting to hear it because you know, as we'll get to, you're doing sales inside big legacy organizations. And so one of the things to me that's most valuable about debate is that you kind of have to come prepared to argue either side of yes. the case, right? And so I think that just speaks to what you're saying here, where you have to be fully prepared and know what the people on the other side of the table are thinking and be able to make their argument better than they'd be able to make against you for them. 
Well, that's actually, I think, and Packy, since, you know, I know that this is a passion of yours as well. I think um, I'd love to take this opportunity to, to correct a, uh, a misperception, a common misperception about debate, which is that um, people perceive um, debate to be about disagreement substantially. When in fact, in my opinion, many of the best debaters win by agreeing or reframing, you know, countervailing arguments as aligned and uh, essentially um, on the same side or, or at very least commensurate with, with the arguments that they that they are, are already making. And I think that, that that skill of finding common ground, which is a huge part of, of the debate activity um, and is also, again, a, a huge um, a huge part of change management. There's uh, a great uh, recent blog from uh, Nir Eyal, the um, user ex experience uh, researcher and, and writer about this idea of reactance. And reactance is this idea that like no one likes being told what to do. Um, and certainly no one likes being told what to do by someone they perceive as arrogant or smug or in some way believes that they're better um, you know, that's, that's just the worst. <laughs> I think no, like none of us, none, no one likes that. No debate for uh, me there. Yeah. You know, I think even though I do come from, to some extent, like an academic approach to, uh, to some of these topics, I think one thing that I'm always very wary of is that what is right for one person might be completely um, wrong for another person. And in procurement, where you have different categories that operate very, very differently, and you have different companies that operate very, very differently, the correct approach to hypothesis testing is never to come in with a hypothesis already formed. Of course, you want to bring ideas to the table, but to begin every engagement with deep listening and questions. And so rather than coming in and saying, this is my hypothesis, what do you think? I always like to have my hypotheses written down as part of the product design and development process, but then actually validate them by asking questions and trying to understand what it's like to, to be on that procurement team, to, to be running that sourcing project. Where are the pain points? Where, where are people getting stuck? When projects run behind, what step are they getting jammed on? Because that can often tell you not just about you know, designing and deploying technology, but it can also tell you a lot about how people culturally make the case for innovation, which in a lot of companies is not only incredibly challenging, but has feels littered with, uh, in a sense, the carcasses <laughs> of those who have tried to change um, these processes before. You know, this is, this is by no means the first wave of procurement technology. In the late uh, 90s, we saw companies like Free Markets and what would become Ariba and is now SAP Ariba really uh, take off. At the time, um, Ariba was the you know, fastest growing publicly traded company of its, of its generation. Um, and in with uh, companies um, like Commerce One, and companies like CombineNet use the basic ideas of combinatorial bidding to enable for the first time real, real-time competition uh, between suppliers. And then you kind of had, much like in a lot of innovation cycles, you had a kind of a winter and these companies consolidated, <laughs> smaller players were bought up and bundled together in these end-to-end -end solution stacks. And you had a period of market consolidation and of deployment and saturation, but not a, not a lot of innovation. 
And the modern period of this renaissance that we were talking about at the beginning of the show really begins in 2014, 2015, when people begin thinking about purpose-built best-of-breed solutions for specific use cases within procurement and really following this model that companies like Salesforce and Marketo used on the go-to-market side of the table, where they said, look, this is a big solution space. There are too many problems <laughs> to solve all of them with one solution. We're going to solve one that has a very clear ROI, that has a very clear user base, where it can be someone's job to get good at using this solution. And not only is it going to be part of their job, it's going to help them be more productive and exceed their targets. And so the people who buy the solution are going to get promoted and they're going to promote other people who are good at using the solution. It's going to create this whole ecosystem of people who get it and have seen the benefits and have seen the um, impact that it has on a business's performance and operations and revenue. And they're going to be the ones ultimately to make the case. You can't Innovation, selling innovation is, in a sense, kind of a contradiction in terms because you can't do it. People really only believe something if they've seen it and if they're able to replicate it and do it themselves. And that's what we're seeing in procurement. We're now getting our kind of first cohorts of practitioners, procurement practitioners, who have successfully implemented digital solutions. And it might only be on one small part of their operations, but they've seen the benefits and they're hungry for more. And that's the future. The future of procurement is best of breed, you know, in the same way that on, in sales and marketing, you have HubSpot connected to your Salesforce, connected to your Zoom info for data, your LinkedIn for prospecting. On procurement, you're going to see data, CRM, and automation as distinct solution spaces that will all be connected together so that eventually you'll actually be able to take needs from the business, decide whether you want to automate you know, 80 or 90% of the process, bring it and route it to the correct person to make that final determination and decision. And for very strategic projects where it might be $100 million negotiation that you're doing, you'll be able to take every task involved with making it more competitive and automate those. So if you want to negotiate with 10 suppliers or 1,000 suppliers, it's the same amount of work. And labor, incremental labor effort, will not be a blocker to competition. Will not That's be the power a of software. To the market. Yes, exactly. Love that. So we've gotten this far in. Tell me what BitOps does and how you came up with the solution. So I'm glad you asked because <laughs> I get carried away a little bit. But BitOps is a strategic sourcing app. So it's part of this, of this stack that includes procure-to-pay, might include marketplace. But BitOps is strategic sourcing as an application, best-of-breed application. So you can think of it like a relationship management solution for your supply chain. You have thousands of suppliers, and you need to get quotes from them and compare them against each other for everything that you buy at scale. BitOps significantly automates that process. And we have an AI engine that runs a simulation of each one of these transactions before they happen and uses that simulation to recommend intelligent prices to the suppliers before they create the quote. And the reason why it is so critical 
to have a solution architected in this way is because with procurement, a ton of your stakeholders that are involved in this very long process do not work for you. They work for other companies. They work for suppliers. And it is hard to motivate and manage their behavior patterns. And so what BitOps did is we said, look, we need a way to get suppliers, to get the suppliers to be excited, bought in with the digital transformation of procurement. And by the way, that is why digital transformation in procurement is so hard. It's not just about the internal stakeholders. It's not just about the procurement team. It's about the supply chain. It's about hundreds or maybe even thousands of companies who have to be part of this process or have to be able or willing to go along with these new, these new digital tools. And so that's where the bottleneck is. That's where the root cause of the bottleneck is in terms of digitization. And so what we realized at BitOps was that there's a very simple technique that you can use to make a process easier. Our CTO, Ben Lakin, came uh, from SurveyMonkey, which is a, a, a consumer survey uh, company where you can create a survey and, you know, for example, send it to your classmates and ask them questions and complete your you know, psychology homework in, in, in that fashion. And you can do a lot of other things with it, too. And, and Ben actually had been running uh, an enterprise product, SurveyMonkey. And one of the things that they saw in the, in the business-to-business context was that if you pre-populated the text fields on a survey, not only did your completion rates go up, but people just overall reported a better experience with the survey, even if you were asking them hundreds of questions. And so Ben and I actually, we, we grew up together in DC. And one of the things, as he was hearing me kind of kvetch about the problems, these spreadsheets, hundreds of lines, and you know we have all these responses, we have to create these pivot tables, it's a, it's a nightmare. Um, he was saying, well, this is actually kind of similar to some of the work I've been doing at SurveyMonkey. And what we did is we began running experiments where we said, is it possible to use this technique called smart defaults that, that um, you know, SurveyMonkey had been leveraging, which would pre-populate the answer? And we did that with you know, the basic information about the supplier. And also, we pre-populated the, um, the, the price. Uh, in the quote, when we when we showed it to the suppliers, and what came back, what we saw when the when the bid was over, it blew our minds. And this this is really what changed everything. Is we realized that the suppliers had used some of these default prices in their actual quote. In their actual quote, can you believe that? And so we looked at this and we said, that's the company. The company has to be around intelligent price recommendations because intelligent price recommendations is the only thing that can take time and cognitive load out of the process on the supplier side of the table. So these are professional suppliers. Oh, yeah. Whose job is responding to these RFPs and RFQs, putting a price in a form and saying, this is what we're willing to do it for. And they're just taking your recommendation. Well, so, and let me be clear, a supplier's quote is a lot more than just the price. It's answers to a set of questions, and in some cases it can be detailed descriptions of their capability, their service history, client references. It can be a whole host of things. So it's, it's not just the price. But the thing that um, we realized after talking to the suppliers is that 
in many cases, so if you're a supplier, you don't want to create a proposal that's going to be rejected. That's a waste of your time. If you've ever spent a lot of time responding to an RFP and then either yes. not heard anything or gotten an unfavorable response, you kind of think, well, if I'd known what you were looking for, <laughs> maybe I could have given it to you. But since I only found out after the fact, it wasn't really possible for me to, in that moment, make a change. What the intelligent price recommendation does is it actually leverages behavioral economics. You think about anchoring and the way the anchoring effect works. But it also actually, from a game theory perspective, clearly communicates a desired outcome in a way that creates risk for actually moving away from that. Because if the supplier has a different idea on what the price should be substantially, then that could actually be a reason for them to lose the business potentially. Now, there, there's no kind of statement that that, that that is the case. But if I'm a supplier, I'm selling you know, bid ops, I'm selling software, I wanna know how, what the willingness to pay is. And so what we realized was that the intelligent price recommendation because it has to be approved by the buyer before it's shown to the supplier, is actually a way of building trust. It's a way of saying, hey, here's my willingness to pay for this part. And if you want to market different, there's no reason that you can't be considered and be competitive. But you should know up front that you're off from what I was expecting. You know, And what actually we see is kind of the dominant behavior in, in bid ops uh, and I'm talking about from the top suppliers uh, in the world, is they will, you know, take up some of the recommendations that are made by the AI, but then they'll go in and they'll change some of the line items where it's material to their business or they have a unique perspective on it, or they know that they're better on quality, so it's going to be worth it to pay a little bit more. And so it doesn't take the supplier out of the equation. It just takes work off their plate. It makes it so that instead of taking a week or two weeks to complete a quote response, a lot of these suppliers are getting it done in a single session, a single sit down to review with their team and submit a qualified quote, and they're winning more. So it's, it's improving their sales efficiency, and it's, it's racking them with some Ws. So that's, that's really a win-win, I mean, from a technology perspective. It reminds me of being kind of on the business side and working with a good lawyer where they're like, all right, you can give up on this. You don't have to give up on this. What do you want to do on this? And it just makes very clear what the issues are. Absolutely. I mean, and this is why it all comes back to, yes, it is technology. It is AI. It is digital, but it's culture. You want technology, ideally, that can narrow the scope of your disagreement or your divergence so you can spend your time on that. And that's really the trend that we're seeing in procurement technology writ large, where automation is not taking anyone's job unless what they do is very, very transactional. What it's doing is it's freeing up time for the procurement and sourcing leadership to actually focus on these strategic activities, relationship building, team building, communication, alignment, and getting everyone on the same page and you just can't do that as well if you have to spend X number of hours a day in a spreadsheet, you know, aligning one column with another. My, so I've waited this long into the pod to say this, but my wife works in supply chain. She was at a company called Harry's doing supply chain there. And I remember that they brought in kind of a, a VP on the team and he brought with him a bottoms up pricing model. It felt for her like she had superpowers, right? Because she was like, I kind of know what everything should cost. So I can go into each one of these negotiations knowing what their costs are going to be, 
and then use that to then go have the conversation. So this feels like that, which was an Excel spreadsheet on steroids, which brings me to the question of a lot of people say AI, how does AI fit into all of this? And then like kind of what is that, you know, superpower that you deliver through the AI? Yeah, great question. And um, I would also say that uh, fascinating to hear about your wife's experience at Harry's, because I think that that feeling of I'm going into this room prepared, <laughs> right? I have some data to back up these, um, these things I'm saying, these asks I might be making of my suppliers. Um, I can point to something and say, this is, this is why this should be this way. Um, it's, it's super powerful. Now, in terms of um, in terms of AI and the way that, that AI plays into this, there's I think two really important things uh, to to note here. So when people say AI, uh, and AI is a, a broader category that also overlaps with machine learning, so you often hear those two said both together. A lot of what AI is today is automated statistics. Uh, it is essentially analyzing frequency and variance in uh, ways that weren't possible before. And what's different about um, AI from, say, a static model or from, you know, in, indeed from a spreadsheet is that AI learns over time. And so the more data that you add to it, the, the better it becomes. And so, you know, the second thing I would say is that from, from our perspective, you know, the interesting thing about the way that we apply AI is that it's all about understanding the effect specific activities have on the outcome of a negotiation. So our first kind of very naive model was just understanding the way that competition drove pricing. If you negotiate with more people, how does it change the price? Does the presence of another potential supplier option change how maybe the incumbent perceives? Well, if you're a sourcing manager, the answer is obviously yes, <laughs> because it's more options, more leverage. But it turns out that as long as you can communicate that presence of competition through a signal, then it can also uh, very efficiently aggregate into an outcome. And so, you know, we like to say spend analytics, aggregate supply in order to make a compelling opportunity by creating greater volume and a larger contract price. Sourcing analytics aggregates competition at scale around specific line items to actually understand, A, the effect of volume-based discounts, B, the effect of seasonality and geography, C, the effect of dollar density within a bid. This one is, is uh, threw me for a loop when we first learned about it. If you put a really expensive line item right next to an inexpensive line item, it's perceived to be even more valuable. And so it discounts the value of the line item next to it. And so actually the order and arrangement of the line items end up mattering to the way that people negotiate and price or think about what a good deal is. And then the last is anchoring. And anchoring is a broad concept understood that if the supplier is the incumbent supplier, their anchoring will be different than a brand new supplier a supplier who might be willing to, uh, you know, cut uh, cut a little bit of their own margin in order to get their foot in the door. So all of those dynamics and variables are factored into the way that our simulation works. But the simulation itself is a machine, and it is imperfect. And so that's one of the reasons why we have a very efficient way of gathering fast feedback in a loop on the buyer side, 
before actually deploying it in a live environment in a negotiation with a supplier. And yeah, that's another thing actually I'd say is, is uh, true about debate is that role playing. You know, we actually in training and in change management, we frequently ask our, our customers and users to actually very quickly role play through an entire bid so they can see what every stage is. And it helps to build comfort and familiarity. You want to be able to, yeah, AI is really complicated. But when I talk, talk to um, someone who might not be familiar with procurement or sourcing, I'm like, we have a machine that tells people what the price should be. And sometimes they disagree with it, but it still makes it faster at the end of the day. <laughs> That's 100%. It. And it, it feels listening to you like, It'd be crazy to know about BitOps, and this is going to sound like a very you-serving question, but it, it feels crazy to know about BitOps then and know that there are all these little things that happen that you don't really think about that you get on your side when you sign up for BitOps. So like, what does that end up looking like in terms of the results for the, the customers who use BitOps? Yeah, it's true. There's a lot of little power, and the power of knowledge, I would argue, is um, you know many times uh, what, I'm, what I'm about to describe. But you know, at the end of the day, this is a business and these are business processes and you want to see tangible business results as the result of implementing a new technology and sourcing. And so the immediate effect is uh, just being able to do more with less in terms of running more sourcing projects, negotiating with more suppliers simultaneously over more line items, influencing more spend. The net effect of which is that most of our customers are able to at least double their savings year on year. And in dramatic cases are able to 5X uh, the amount of savings that they were previously able to drive, mostly by just running more strategic sourcing projects, not getting a supplier to agree to a lower price than they would have otherwise, but just increasing the throughput and democratizing access to this process, which, as I mentioned, in most organizations is very siloed, very inaccessible, and is perceived as frustrating and painful, and therefore is not utilized as much as it could be on so many of the projects where it could make a huge difference. That is fascinating. So sometimes you're able to negotiate a little bit better because you have this and, and you can drive the supplier's margins down. But most of the time, it's just by removing friction. Let's say you ran strategic sourcing on 10% of what, what you procure before, now you're running on 50%. And so you're doing, you know, that's where the 5X comes from. There's just five times more projects that you're saving money on. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you think about the history of strategic sourcing, a lot of strategic sourcing management books and courses counsel leaders to take a Pareto or 80-20 approach to their spend. And so the way that most strategic sourcing organizations are set up is to identify the 20% of the contracts that account for 80% of the bottom line revenue, source those and, you know, optimize kind of as much as possible within that, uh, within that category. What you're seeing now, much like the evolution from statistics to data science, where in statistics, you take a sample, assign attributes to it and generalize those attributes. And in data science, you try to look at the whole data set and actually see the patterns of attributes and their variance across that data set. What you're seeing now is that as businesses become more data-driven, they're actually saying, why don't we apply an automation uh, uh, level of scrutiny and competition to our entire spend? If it's low enough friction, then 
there's no reason not to. Um, and there's significant benefits, of course, in, uh, in doing so. So paint the vision then. So if that's on a single kind of company by company level, when everybody's using bid ops and everybody in kind of your target market is using bid ops, what does the world of supply chain and procurement look like? And kind of what does that enable businesses to do that they can't do today? Wow. Yeah. I appreciate you you asking me to um, the, to dream big because it is, let me just tell you, early days in this renaissance. You know, 80% of firms are still using email and spreadsheets as the dominant tool. And many people believe that's a relatively low estimate. And so the world in which everyone is using bid ops, our, you know, our level of automation is a world where there are a lot more people who are excited to go into procurement and strategic sourcing, where it's uh, finally kind of earned its spot as this mission critical function within the C-suite. It's perceived as a strategic player in every major business decision. The head of procurement and supply chain is the trusted advisor of the CEO, CFO, and indeed the board of the company. And their processes are driving uh, not just value in terms of cost savings and in terms of, you know, getting great service and great quality and great performance from their supply chain, but it's also a world in which companies can achieve many other goals as part of their procurement and supply chain. Goals like decreasing their carbon emissions, goals like making sure that the footprint of their spend is going to companies that don't employ forced labor, that are making the world a better place, that are creating programs for people who are in poverty to become uplifted through job training and through access to the next generation uh, of opportunities, uh, jobs involving technology, jobs involving data, knowledge work. And it's, uh, it's a world where procurement and supply chain are part of the conversation around diversity and inclusion, and in a meaningful way, in a, in a way that, um, that companies see their suppliers and their supply chain as not merely kind of transactional entities to be managed or squeezed, but as like true partners, um, not just in um, the operations of the company, but in the growth of the company and the success of the company. And so that when um, it comes time to ask for cost savings, it's part of a vision that everyone can get behind because everyone wins together when the company wins. Um, I think when you can create an aligned supply chain like that, there's nothing you can't do as a business leader. And I think that that level, you know, essentially what you're asking me is what does the world look like when we can be intentional and strategic about every decision that matters to us. And that's what I think the world looks like when we've automated away a lot of this transactional busy work and um, tedious pieces of paper. So where is BitOps on that journey now? Oh, early days, early, early days. You know, in terms of our automation capability, what we're really known for is uh, what I mentioned earlier, these intelligent price recommendations that help um, decrease the amount of time and cognitive energy and manual data entry involved in every transaction, enabling one-click uh, RFQs and one-click quotes. That's really where our focus is uh, today. But already in 2021, we've signed new customer relationships around people, uh, around people and, and uh, supply chains that are interested in advanced analytics. And so, uh, you know, supplier diversity is a topic that you're hearing increasingly more and more. And I think that as reporting requirements increase, not just from a compliance perspective, but from a, 
hey, the corporate board wants to include this in our 10K. Hey, the board actually thinks that our stock will be worth more if we have this information and we can track our progress against where we're at today. And I think as more people realize that the public markets with uh, the advent of just more people trading and buying stocks and you know, technologies like Robinhood and, and, and others, that you'll see that companies want to provide data around their own equity that caters towards the retail buyer of their stock. And I think that increasingly, like uh, BitOps is already involved in initiatives that, that support that, whether, you know, I mentioned supplier diversity, but there, there are certainly others around uh, environmental sustainability um, decarbonizing supply chains uh, and uh, and others. Um, and I think just what investors are thinking, savvy investors, maybe even investors that don't care about diversity or social responsibility, is they're thinking a company that can track those metrics, a company that has detailed knowledge of their line items is just a better run company. <laughs> I want that company to have my money instead of a company that has no idea who their suppliers are or what's in their supply chain. And so you're seeing this actually as you see more markets around socially responsible stocks and equities are created, that those markets and the reason those markets typically are outperforming the S&P 500 and some of these other um, aggregators of um, overall market performance is that their participants are people who have to be serious about data because their entire their entire value proposition to consumers, to retail investors, to institutional investors is we know more about our supply chain than anyone else knows about theirs. And so that's why you should pay more for our stock. I mean, I think that is a perfect place to end, particularly given the audience that we have here on Not Boring of people who are very much retail investors in the public markets and looking for more, more interesting data. Where can people find you and where can people find BitOps? So the best place to find uh, all things BitOps is, is on our website, uh, bitops.com. I'd also suggest people to check us out on LinkedIn. Uh, we're fairly prolific with content. We post uh, a word of the week for supply chain nerds uh, who want to learn more about the, the wonderful world of supply chain and procurement. Uh, we have a, a quite an active blog. And um, later this year, actually March 24th, we are hosting a, a virtual conference with some of the best startups in supply chain and procurement. We will all be making presentations um, as well as um, thought leaders uh, like uh, Dr. Eloise Epstein, who's the leading procurement futurist at Carney, which is one of the top uh, procurement consulting shops in the world. Tien Tsua, who's the founder and CEO of Zuora um, and was chief strategy officer at Salesforce in early days. Um, he will be keynoting about how the subscription economy is changing everything uh, from a digital transformation standpoint. Joanna Martinez, who's a leading futurist when it comes to digital transformation in procurement and supply chain, has implemented a slew of such transformations at large um, corporations all around the world and a just all-star cast of workshops and uh, best practices, uh, peer learning sessions, and case studies around specific uses of AI and machine learning in supply chain and procurement and how it's really moving the needle on some of these metrics that, that we've discussed during this podcast. So I, if people are interested, it's free to attend. Um, we even have a, a wonderful magician who's going to come and do a magic show for us. So check it out uh, if, you're, if you're interested in the neighborhood, March 24th, and you can sign up on bitops.com. And I'll put a link in the show notes. I said you were off the hook, but you said something that I have to ask and we'll end it here. 
What is your favorite supply chain word of the week? They're all so good. I can't, I can't pick just one. So I'll just tell you the last one. The last word of the week was demurrage. And demurrage is a fee that you pay a, um, a shipping terminal manager or a um, shipper or a, a third-party logistics provider in the event that the cargo remains uh, in their custody for longer than the, uh, than the allotted time. And the reason that it's the word of the week is because this word, which is often abbreviated uh, detention and demurrage charges, is showing up on invoices all over the world as the COVID vaccine is distributed and port congestion affects every other freight stream. <laughs> and so if you're a procurement or supply chain manager, you're seeing this word a lot and um, just uh, a window uh, into our world. And if, if you're into supply chain, um, there's lots of other uh, great words that, um, that give it a sense of how the, the systems that we all depend upon for our medicine and our food and our housing are set up and, and how they're running each and every day. Well, I can't think of a better place to, to leave it than that. Edmund, this was so much fun. Thanks for coming on the Not Boring Podcast. Everybody go check out bidops.com. Have a great day. Thanks, Becky. You too. Look, there's something I need to ask. Are you tired of spending more money than you have to? Are you tired of spreadsheets and volume email chains? Well, I'm here to tell you that there's another way. You can run your sourcing team. You can run better business.